Turn, please, to Galatians chapter 1, and we are in verse 11 this morning, uh, covering through verse 17. We'll read the verses together and study and be excited about what the Lord has to teach us this morning. God says, for I, through Paul, would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus." Father, we praise you again for your word, and Lord, I pray that as we study, your spirit would move in our heart and mind, Father, that you would be glorified, that we would be edified, and Lord, that Jesus would be praised and exalted. In his name, amen. Well, for those of you who are here this morning that believe this gospel, the question for you this morning is why? Why do you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Others of you may be here and you're asking the same question, why would anybody believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ if you certainly don't? Why do we believe that this gospel is the way to forgiveness of sins, to heaven instead of hell? Because there are so many competing ideas out there, aren't there? So many other ideas. Why, why is this the only one out of all of the ideas that are out there in the world? Paul's confronting the Galatian churches for falling for a different gospel, a distorted one. So why is this one right here the right one, not the one they were falling for? Why is this the right one over anything that's out there that's offered to us in this world? Some people believe there is no one thing you need to believe or know. There is no one thing out there, uh, no supreme being. We, We know this as atheism, but it's pretty problematic for a lot of people because it's so dogmatic, it's so arrogant in the claim that I know for sure there's nothing out there, no higher power, no higher being. It's 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 hard for people to fall into atheism or or even to choose that for themselves. And so agnosticism has caught on a little bit more firmly with people. I just don't know. It seems really humble for me to say that, right? I don't know. How can anybody be so sure? Let's just question everything and not really know much about anything. Others are more sure about the answers they give, not the gospel. Those within Islam sincerely believe that they have the truth in the Quran. The Latter-day Saints are very certain of the additional revelation that they have of the understanding of Jesus in the Book of Mormon, uh, another testament as it's called. The Buddhists are sure that their quest for liberation and enlightenment is the correct way through the continual cycle of life and death and rebirth and redeath and on and on the cycle goes in their thought. So how do we know? How do we know that there is an answer? There is one answer. How do we know that this is the right one? What makes us so sure that we have the truth, the only truth, the only way? And isn't it arrogant to believe that? This is the heart of why Paul is so incensed as he writes this letter. It's so urgent. It's so important. This is the difference between not just truth and error, but between heaven and hell, between glorifying the Lord God with our life, between 
shaming him and ourselves and then falling under his wrath rightly forever. So why do you believe it? And if someone came and asked you that, would your reasons hold up to scrutiny? Maybe not to convince the other person, but at least for your own self. If you were challenged, if if questions were brought to you, how would your faith hold up? Would it stand up? Because there is the gospel, and then there is the all others category. There, There is one truth, and then there is all the rest. The gospel is unique and exclusive so that everything else falls into all others. But all of us, especially younger people, As you encounter people in the world, they will challenge your belief in the one true gospel. If you come with any other belief, if you come with any other ideas, most of the time you'll be okay, you'll be left alone. But if you come claiming the name of Jesus, the world will challenge, the world will question, the world will not be okay with that. So Paul asks, how could you possibly believe in a different gospel because there is no other gospel? There's the gospel and there's all others. How do we know? That's what this next section of Galatians is about. The first part of Galatians, verses 1 through 10, was introductory. It contained in short form all that he's going to talk about in the epistle. This section here in verse 11 of chapter 1 begins here. It goes all the way through the middle of chapter 2, verse 14. But he gives right here almost a reasoned, calm account and reason for this. It's like he started writing Galatians and he was just really upset and he's just, he's just ramped up and he starts right off the bat, I'm an apostle not from man but through Jesus and, and grace to you and peace from God the Father, not from your works and not from anything else you're doing, but the one who delivers us from the present evil age. And I'm just shocked at you that you're falling for a different gospel. And then before verse 11, he seems to just take a breath like, okay, <laughs> I need you to know this. And he begins to to sketch out his life. And he's going to get ramped up again in Galatians. He's going to get really excited again. Get on that high. But for right now, he just takes a a, a minute. He denounces the claim that he's a man pleaser. And he's going to give his testimony here in the next few verses. But not just for the primary reason of giving his testimony, but because he's defending himself and the gospel that he preached from the attacks, the questions that people came. See, Paul and his message were so intertwined that if you were to dismiss one, you were going to dismiss the other. When you see certain people, you think of certain things associated with them, right? I mean, if you think of, or if you hear the name uh, Bezos, Jeff Bezos, you think of Amazon, right? You hear the word, the, the name Bill Gates, you think of Microsoft. Some other things recently, but you, you, think, of, you think of Microsoft. Um, When you heard Paul, when you saw Paul, you thought of the gospel that he preached. You thought of Jesus. Not that Paul was Jesus, but because Paul always talked about Jesus and always talked about his gospel. When you heard Paul or saw him, that's what you thought about. So at this moment, just stop for one second and think, what do people think about when they hear your name? When they say you coming, what do they think about? Do they think about Jesus? Do they think about the gospel that you're going to talk about, that you live and you just can't talk about other things? Or do they think about your favorite sports team? Oh, here comes that fill-in-the-blank fan. (laughs) Oh, here comes that guy with the bad temper. (laughs) Here comes that that person that always talks about his favorite meal. (laughs) You know, whatever it is. What do people think about when when they see you, when they hear your name? When people met Paul, what he talked about, 
What he told them, what he shared them about was Jesus and the gospel. That's what they associated with Paul. And so when they were dismissing Paul, they're getting rid of Paul. They're getting rid of his message, the gospel also. And that was a danger for them. So why do we place so much trust in what Paul wrote, in what this first century Jewish man who abandoned his original faith was writing to us in the New Testament? Why do we believe what this man Saul, who is also called Paul, said? For that reason, why do we listen to anything that Matthew or Peter or Moses or any of these men wrote down? We're trusting our eternal souls. Our eternal souls we're trusting to these men the writings of these people in this book. Do we understand, do do we take it so lightly? Do we take it so easily that what these words say and what these words mean, that these are the truth and this is the only truth? It's so narrow, it's so exclusive. If this isn't the Word of God, you know, we should just get rid of it because it's a whole lot easier to pick from the all others category to go to the buffet of philosophy and religion and pick some of this and leave some of that and get what we like and leave behind what we don't. But if this is God's Word, if this is the only truth, we better be wholly devoted to it. So Paul's going to answer that for us here. He's going to state the reason. He's going to make the claim for why this is the truth, the only real gospel, the only true gospel. And then he's going to give some evidence in verses 13 of chapter 1 all the way through the middle part of chapter 2. Let's look at it together. Number one, in the first part in verses 11 and 12, he says this is the only true gospel because it is the only divine gospel. This is the only divine gospel. That's the claim. And the entire rest of the section is meant to prove that claim. It's stated right up front. In verses 13 through 17, he's going to give his testimony of his salvation, how he was saved and how he was commissioned. In verses 18 to 24, he's going to demonstrate that his reliance was on no one but Jesus alone for that change in his life. In chapter 2, he's going to show that even though he'd been independent from the other apostles in Jerusalem, he had been preaching the same message all along. And then at the end of the section, chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, he's going to show the power of the gospel that even allowed him to confront a capital A apostle over a problem in his life. So let's take a look just at this thesis statement for the section, verses 11 and 12. And he says this with an introductory, I would have you know. (laughs) This is called a formal epistolary construct as a disclosure formula. You're like, what in the world does that mean? (laughs) Paul says, if you don't get anything else, get this. That's what that means. If you, don't get, if you don't understand anything else, you need to get this. Now, he can say that because he's already given them the gospel. He's preached it to them. He's recapped it, as we've seen in the first 10 verses. This is the gospel that he's been faithful to preach to them. He preached it already to them. He hadn't changed it. He hadn't modified it. It's the same thing. Uh, you need to know this. Before we get to know what it is, he addresses them as brothers. Brothers. That's important because despite his frustration, even his anger as he's, he's welling up with this, this, this heat and, and frustration and anger and incense, just madness about what's going on as they just, they just leave behind the gospel, he truly believes they're brothers and sisters who have believed the true gospel. And they're not to see people just to, to treat carelessly and disrespectfully. He's, they're stumbling, but he still cares for them. Brothers, come on. So what is it that they need to know? The gospel that he preached to them is not man's gospel. And it reminds us of uh, the first few verses where Paul said, my apostleship doesn't come from man. So it was apostleship, and it's also the gospel. None of this came from Paul. 
Verse 12 expands the point. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. That eliminates Paul from just inventing it. Nobody taught it, and he didn't, he didn't find it through experience. He didn't discover it all by himself. Nobody taught it to him. It was given to him by Jesus. In other words, there's no way for Paul to have gotten this from anyone of this world. This is not of this world. So there are two important words that Paul uses to describe how he came to this gospel, how he received it. It's the word receive and the word revelation. The word receive means to be given something that you didn't already have, specifically with teaching or instruction. He didn't have it, then he received it. It was given to him. The second word is revelation. It's the word Revelation, apocalypto, the word that is the, the word that we use as uh, the book of Revelation, the, the same word as that book. It was revealed or disclosed to him from who? From Jesus Christ himself. So he claims to have received the gospel, not from any person, human being, including himself, but from God the Son himself, Jesus Christ. And he revealed it to him. Notice that Paul was passive the whole time. He wasn't active. He wasn't out there looking for it. He wasn't out there trying to discover it. He was there. Suddenly it was given to him, revealed to him, and he, and he, and he took it. Now, this is quite a claim, isn't it? That God himself gave me this message, this gospel, this truth. But he's saying this because, number one, it's true, but because also, number two, this is why you should believe this gospel over any other gospel that comes along that isn't really another gospel, because this comes from God, from God directly. Now, what he's going to do is set out to prove that point, but we want to take a moment now and just think about this gospel that comes from God and how unique it is among all other systems, secular, religious, philosophical. This claims to be the only true and right one. Is that true? And isn't it arrogant to say so, as we asked before? The answer is yes, it's true, and no, it isn't arrogant to say so. We're just going to answer it right up front. It's not arrogant to say that the world is round, right? Because it's fact, it's true. It's not arrogant to say two plus two equals four, because that's the truth. Okay, so we're going to say that, um, but among all worldly systems and philosophies and religions, no set of beliefs is like the gospel. Nobody Nobody would ever invent this gospel. It's just not something that would have come to somebody's mind. Why? Because at the core of every belief system out there that's in the all others category, everything requires you to do something to attain something. Everything else requires you to do something to attain something. Even atheism or secular humanism what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to reject all knowledge of the supernatural, and you're supposed to restrain your thinking and your mind and your whole process of, of thinking and feeling to only what can be observed and recorded physically according to the scientific method. And when you have done that, what you have attained is freedom from religion, and you attain an independent autonomy where you can think freely and critically on your own using your own resources. And that's what you've attained, that it's found nowhere else in the world, only those who are enlightened by dismissing anything they can't think, see, hear, taste, smell, see, hear, taste, smell. I'm missing one. Feel. Thank you. And then you've got to tell everybody else about it. You've got to evangelize that message. See, even, even in a secular philosophy, in Buddhism, 
You need to realize that life is really just all about suffering. So if you'll just learn to meditate and be a good person, as Buddhism defines good person, you can attain enlightenment, nirvana. In Islam, there are five pillars that teach you what you need to do to please Allah. Your, your idea, your, your goal is to try to please Him, to be able to get into this place that He's got for you. And so to do that, there are five pillars. You've got to declare exclusive belief in Allah and the Prophet Muhammad. You've got to pray, give, fast, and go on pilgrimage. Those are the five things. When you have faithfully lived out those five pillars, you have attained a chance at salvation. Hopefully I've, done it. Hopefully I've done it enough because Allah will come out and he'll take out a scale and if you've done enough of those good things and you've done them the right way, the way he feels like you should have done them, um, then maybe you can get in. But if you haven't, then, well, you're not in. You're out and you'll be punished forever. There's no guarantee of your salvation. In every system that people actually believe there is something to attain to and there is the way that you must attain it. There's something or some things that you've got to do. What about the gospel of Jesus Christ? We've got seven distinctions for why this is different. The biblical gospel is different, so we can understand how unique it is because it came from God and not from man, from his imagination. By the way, that's another way that we say that this is not arrogant to claim this is the only one because none of us, no human being gets to claim it as the author of this. No human being gets to have the pride to say, yep, that was my idea. (laughs) I did that. None of us gets the glory. God does. Other, other systems claim to come from God or gods, but this is different. How? Here are seven distinctions. Number one, or A in your notes, God's direct involvement. God's direct involvement. In John 1, we see God himself becoming flesh. In Revelation, we see this God, uh, Jesus himself, who is worshipped alongside God as God, as, as only God is. But in every system of religion, a God or a high being discloses information to a person or or a group of people, and they write it down. In Christianity, God himself came down to earth and lived among us as one of us. He spoke the truth, and he lived the gospel himself. And this God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus himself, is our intermediary between us and him. So it's God's direct involvement. There's nobody that goes between us. There's no priest that goes between us aside from God himself as Jesus. That's different. B, another distinction, man's efforts excluded. Man's efforts are excluded in this gospel. Romans 3.20, Galatians 2.16 that we quoted this morning, they say the same thing. The gospel excludes my efforts rather than includes them or necessitates them. Every other system, philosophy, or religion, in every one of them, salvation or enlightenment or whatever you're trying to attain to, is only brought about by what you have done or what you are doing. It's dependent on me being a certain way or doing a certain thing. That's pride. That is arrogance, that I can do enough to attain to whatever this high state is, whatever this ultimate end goal is, that I have the power and the ability to do it, to come to the realization that God is too holy for me to please is humbling, and it's offensive, and people don't want that. That's another reason that nobody's going to come up with this gospel. Here's God, here's us, and there's no way for you to get to God. You can't do it on your own. C. Another distinction is the relationship between God and man. 
The relationship between God and man is unique in Christianity. In Psalm 8.4, the, the psalmist questions, God, why do you care about man at all? <laughs> what is man that you are mindful of, the son of man, that you care for him? Why does a great, awesome, almighty God care for limited, sinful human beings? 2 Corinthians 5, we are reconciled to God through Christ. We have a relationship reconciled to God despite our sin because of His grace in Jesus Christ. The gospel not only allows a relationship, it necessitates a personal relationship between you and God, the almighty God of the universe. Some systems say there is no God, others say there's a God, but you don't get to know Him, you just obey Him as I tell you what He says. (laughs) Right? Those are the other systems out there. Nothing has the focus and the continuing need for a relationship as Christianity does, as the Scriptures teach, the relationship between God and man. D, another distinction is the Trinity. The three-in-one God, Matthew 28, we know that Jesus told us to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 16, Paul ends his letter with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. There are three in one. Now tell me, would you, has anyone ever invented a religion where literally nobody can wrap their mind completely around something like this, where three are actually one? I'm not, I'm not going to, if I'm going to come up with something, I'm going to come up with something that's a little bit more concrete that everybody can understand, right? But God is so transcendent. He's so bigger than us. He's so other, holy from us. We cannot grasp fully all that he is in his holiness, in his, in his three in one, in his greatness, his transcendence. We just, we can't do it. And nobody else has come up with something that people just can't fully grab and, grasp and, and wrap our mind around. We can understand it. We can comprehend in a sense. You know, so it's not something that's just gobbledygook and and nonsense, but it's just not something we can fully wrap our mind around, the Trinity, the three-in-one God. E, the next one, Uh, the hypostatic, that's a big word, right? We had it written out for you in your notes. (laughs) The hypostatic union of Christ, the hypostatic union of Christ. In Luke 1, the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and Jesus, the Son of God, was conceived as a human being. John 1.14, the Word who was God became flesh and dwelt among us. The hypostatic union is God and man in one. In this one person, Jesus Christ. As difficult as the three in one is, the Trinity How hard is it to wrap your mind around Jesus, who is fully God and fully man? How does it work out that God, without losing any of his essence, is the limitless God became limited human being? And he's not some kind of mixed up, multiple personality, half this, half that mutant creature, as mankind has been able to invent. You think of mythology and, you know, demigods, half God, half man. You think of half man, half animal, and, and all the things that man has come up with in his, in his imagination. Nobody has ever invented or come up with the idea that God can become man and remain fully God and be fully man in one being, one person. That's amazing. It blows our mind. Nobody would invent this. It's beyond our ability, again, to grasp fully. But this is the truth of the Word of God. F, the, the sixth one is Jesus' resurrection. Matthew 28, 1 through 10, what do they say? He is not here. He is risen, as he said. Romans 6, 1 through 11, he's never going to die again. He died to sin once for all, but now he lives forever to God. 
The boldest, most falsifiable claim that any religion has ever made is that their progenitor, their beginner, their author of their faith, the one who started it all, died and rose again. Boldest, most falsifiable claim that any system has ever come up with. Other people have been resurrected from the dead. The Bible teaches those as miracles, but those people died again. Jesus will never die again. He died as part of his plan to save us. He rose again as a necessary part of that plan, and that was never disproven, never shown to be false. It was the truth. It is still the truth. He is resurrected. He is alive forevermore. Listen, if that were not true, you can just chalk all of this up to creative imagination and just move on with life and pick something from the all others category. But the resurrection of Jesus is so unique and distinct in this gospel because this gospel came from God, not from man. The final one, the number seven, and, and we don't get to work through these very, very much and get deep into these. We could talk all day about each one of these, but the last one is the scriptures themselves. The scriptures. Every word is breathed out by God onto the pages of Scripture from God Himself. In, in 2 Timothy 3 and 2 Peter 1, nobody came up with this. It came from the Holy Spirit Himself. Again, this is a unique claim. Other Scriptures that are out there and other religions claim to come from some kind of God, but this, it, none of them match the claim of the Scriptures. The, the, Bible's, the Bible claims divine authorship, and, and dual authorship, using human beings to say exactly what God wanted said. And then it demonstrates the truthfulness, the veracity of it, both internally and externally, to demonstrate that's true. You say, well, the Book of Mormon says the same thing, you know, about civilizations in, a, in early America where, where things were, were happening there, and th those have been repeatedly demonstrated to be false. The Quran of Islam, along with all the other writings that are the basis for their authority, are ambiguous, and they sparingly mention cities or historical events that would help you verify what it was saying. The Scriptures are repeatedly shown accurate and truthful, even in the specificity and the detail that they give. Now, there are so many more. There are so many other ways, and, and like I said, there are so many. We could dive into these, and we could probably do a message on each one of these and, and just grow in faith and edification, but, but these are seven of the most obvious, the most major distinctions of the gospel in Christianity that demonstrate its uniqueness because it comes from God, the limitless, almighty, good, powerful God. That's the gospel that Paul received by revelation from Jesus Christ himself, not by man. So what about you? Do you believe it? Is it just words on a page? Is it just a church thing? Is it just something on Sunday that we talk about? Or is this something that is from God? God's divine message given to us for us to believe, to live, to speak, to love. Anything else that comes from man, we need to deny and reject and have nothing to do with it. Well, Paul's now going to give his personal testimony to his faith in this gospel. Number two, let's look in verses 13 and 14. And I know we're moving quickly, but we, we want to just make sure that we get through this passage um, to, to make sure we understand what Paul is saying as we get ready for next week. Number two is Paul's life in the past. Paul's life in the past. In case we think maybe Paul was just predisposed to switching between religions or, or just becoming the inventor of a new belief system, he describes his complete devotion to the wrong gospel. You heard about my former life, he said. You know what I was like. He was in one sense completely satisfied with his choice of the wrong gospel out of the all others category. He was devoted. 
He was zealous, so extremely zealous. It wasn't for the scriptures, it wasn't for God, but for, what does he say, the traditions of his fathers. The traditions developed within Judaism. In that sense, he was completely satisfied. He was doing everything he needed to do. Philippians 3 says he was circumcised the eighth day. He was of the people of Israel. He was in the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He he was the top Hebrew, the Hebrewest person you could ever meet. (laughs) That's what that saying means. As to Allah, a Pharisee. As to the Pharisees were the most respected conservative group of religious figures in Israel. (gasps) Oh, you were a part of that group. A persecutor of the church as to zeal, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. In a, there was nobody better than Paul in Judaism, advancing beyond those people even of his own age. Now, in a deeper sense, nobody is ever truly satisfied or content when they have a gospel from the all others category. None of us can fully ever be truly satisfied. But in Paul's mind, for all that he knew in his flesh, he was doing everything he was supposed to do and more. He was excelling and he was totally committed and he's, he's, he's going after this gospel. There was no other gospel in his mind. You've got to work, you've got to work, you've got to do, you've got to do everything you can, and when you're done everything you can, you've got to find the way to do some more, and you've got to persecute this church. And for Paul, if there was any other way, he would have tried to find it, but there was no other way in his mind. And if he would allow for any other way besides what he was doing, the last one on the entire planet would have been this gospel because he was persecuting it. He was going after it. This gospel had been spreading. He'd been pursuing it to destroy it. He, he was violently persecuting this, this, this gospel. Um, the word violently is excessive. It's beyond extreme. He was trying to win favor with God and man. You've got Numbers 25, uh, 1 through 9. Uh, read those verses. That, that's the kind of zeal that Paul was hoping for. That the, 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 the Phineas, the grandson of Aaron, um, struck two people and killed them in his zeal for the Lord, and he was hailed a hero because of his zeal. That's what Paul was looking for. But here we see a clear, clear designation in these verses. Those who are within the true gospel, being part of the church of God, those who have the gospel and who believe in and live out this gospel are part of the church of God. Those who are not are not in the church of God. It is God's treasure, his people, those who belong to God. But that's who Paul was trying to pursue and trying to destroy, the emphasis on trying because he was, he was a failure at destroying the church, praise God. But a final point to notice is that he didn't get this gospel from any of those people that he was persecuting. As many of them as were trying to preach the gospel as he was killing them. We even have Stephen's entire speech as he was, being, as he was about to be stoned. And then as, as he was being stoned, Paul heard the gospel, but he rejected it as he was trying to kill them. That was his life before the gospel. Let's look at number three. Finally, briefly, his life interrupted. Number three, Paul's life interrupted, verses 15 to 17. He's going to briefly just reference his conversion and commission to preach the gospel. It's important for us to recognize the points about his conversion that he brings out because this is what he's going to say. It's not just his apostleship. It's not just the gospel that came from God. Paul did none of this stuff himself. Even Paul's conversion did not come from him. Paul can't claim even of his own work even to be converted to this gospel. That was the work of God. Let's look at A. Paul's conversion was, verse 15, initiated by God. 
Paul's conversion was initiated by God. God is referenced in two different ways. He who had set me apart before I was born, or the original, from, from my mother's womb, and he who called me by his grace. By referring to himself as, as someone that God had set aside for his use before he was born, he puts himself in some pretty serious company. It's King David in Psalm 139, before I was born, you knew my inward parts. Before You, you saw my unformed being, my substance, like before I was even a person, a human being. In the, con- in the sense of the context, God had written every one of the days of David before his life, before they happened, God knew David. In Jeremiah, God explains to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, before we think, well, that's because God looked down through corridors of time, and he saw that Jeremiah was going to be a good prophet because he had something in there that he decided he was going to do, God decided to choose him and set him apart and consecrate him to be useful to him. Here's what Jeremiah says. Then I said, ah, Lord God! Behold, I do not know how to speak, for I'm only a youth. <laughs> Jeremiah says, why on, earth would you, why on earth would you set me aside and consecrate me? I got nothing. I am nothing. God says, don't worry about that. Never mind any of that. I'm going to give you the words. You be faithful to what I say. God initiated the life of King David before he was born. He initiated the prophecies of Jeremiah as a prophet before he was born. In Luke chapter 1, we read about John the Baptist and how he's set aside from before he was even born to be the prophet who would prepare the way for Jesus. Paul says here, God set him apart before he was born. And it's not because Paul deserved it or earned it. You know, sometimes we think, wow, what arrogance to say, well, God chose me, God selected me, but it's really the opposite when we realize that it was according to God's grace, not according to our merit. We can't even say again that God looked down through time to see, are you going to choose me? Oh, then I'll choose you, because what that does is it takes your faith and it makes it a work that makes you worthy of salvation, where God's going to choose you. Oh, I'm going to choose you because look at how good you're going to be. Look how smart you're going to be as you decide to follow me. It makes it a work that brings about our salvation. Paul says, it was nothing I did. Look how terrible I was, violently persecuting the church, trying to destroy the church. For some reason, God chose me to do something in me that I would never do on myself. It is the calling of God by his grace, he said. Nothing good that I had done. That's what Paul says about God in the same breath, that it was the one who called me by his grace. So Paul was joining in some, some really special company, King David, the prophet Jeremiah, John the Baptist. But what we read about in the scriptures in Romans 8 is that all of us who are saved by God are foreknown by God, predestined, he said, to be conformed to Jesus, called, justified, and glorified. We join in in that special company of those who are saved by God's grace, not by our own works, because of what God has said, because of what God has done. Now, again, we don't deny a person must believe and repent. You must decide to hear, to, to hear and accept and receive and believe, and, and you've got to do those things. We don't buy into a distorted gospel that says you never have to believe. If you're predestined, you never have to do a thing because God's already going to save you. We don't buy into any of that distorted gospel. But all who repent and believe cannot claim to have done it themselves. That's what the Bible is teaching. If I believe in Jesus, if I'm saved by his grace, it's not because I've done anything. It's because he's done everything. God initiated this work of salvation. B, Paul's conversion was illuminated by God, verse 16. Illuminated. 
This God was pleased to reveal His Son to me. Um, the word here that, that the ESV uses is the word to. He revealed His Son to Paul. But the original is actually the word in, within Paul. He revealed Jesus in Paul. What Paul's referring to here is the work of God, specifically the Holy Spirit, called illumination. Again, Paul was hearing the gospel by those people he was trying to persecute, he's trying to destroy. He's trying to get rid of this gospel. He's heard it. He knows the facts. He's well acquainted with it. That's why he's so against it, because it worked against his own acts to try to please God by his own merit. But as Jesus revealed himself to Paul on the road to Damascus, he refers to himself only as Jesus, the one you're persecuting, and that's apparently all Paul needed. He already had the facts of the gospel. What he didn't have was the acceptance of that gospel within Instead of denying it, he needed to accept it. But it was only when God was pleased to reveal his son in Paul that he accepted it, he received it, and believed it. That's the work of illumination. It's not that somebody who's not saved or somebody that doesn't have the Holy Spirit can just read the words on the page and not get it not, and just be confused. It's not that at all. That's not what we're saying with illumination. What we're saying is somebody can read this and they can get the bullet points, they can get the facts, but they're not going to receive it and accept it and believe it unless God does a work in their heart. And you've got 1 Corinthians 2 to help us um, explain it, to see it even more. We have not been given the Spirit from the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we can understand the things freely given to us by God. He's already given it to us. When do we get it? When He works in us. Young people, if you th- are bored, if you think church is dumb or boring, if you think it's a waste of time, you need to look into your heart. There's already a window into your heart to see have I accepted this? Have I received this gospel? Or is it just something that's facts on a page? Paul knew enough about the gospel that he had thought that it was terrible, it was evil. He needed to destroy it, but it wasn't until God illumined his heart to see and to understand, to receive and accept it. Let's look finally at verse 17c. Paul's conversion was isolated by God. It was isolated by God. When Paul was converted by Jesus Paul didn't consult with any flesh and blood, he said. You know, he didn't go to Jerusalem to the apostles who were before him. Now, why would he do that? Maybe he wanted some affirmation. You know, maybe he wanted to make sure this is the message that I have. Is this the right one? Is this the one you guys have? He didn't do any of that. He didn't need any of that because it came from directly from God. So what he's saying here when he, when he says that he's going, he went away to Arabia and he returned again to Damascus, he's going the opposite direction instead of Jerusalem. That's what he's meaning. That's what he's saying here. It's a big deal because this gospel didn't come from man. He didn't go to the wilderness to talk to the, the one person in the desert. There was nobody out there. It was a wilderness. He didn't go to Jerusalem, the epicenter of this new Christianity thing. He didn't talk to anybody. He got it directly from the Lord. Is this what you believe about the gospel? Is this the description of the gospel in your life? Uh, just a complete interruption of my life <laughs> from what I was to what God did in my life to grab a hold of me. In the following verses that we're not going to cover this morning, uh, Lord willing, next week, you can see a complete change in Paul's life, a complete and opposite direction of his life. But there was that interruption where the gospel came to him and his life immediately changed. He didn't become perfect, but he was changed. Is that how you would describe the gospel? A divine gospel from God himself working in your life. Our application that we need to take from this is that we need to strengthen our resolve to believe the gospel. Strengthen that resolve. This is the only one. 
This is the one that we need to believe and we need, as Pastor Kyle said earlier, we need to be reminding ourselves of, preaching to ourselves because there's so much of the world that wants to come and replace it and challenge it. This is the gospel. This is the message that the people around us need to hear. They need to know. They're not going to hear it from the world. Nobody's going to come up with this message. Nobody's going to invent this. It has to come from God and he's given it to us plainly in his word. So think about the ways that you question it. Think about the ways that you doubt it. Think about how those questions come in and and the things that you say, the things that you do that reveal those doubts. How are you going to handle that? We're going to strengthen our resolve to believe this. We've got one another. We've got the word. We can pray. There's a lot of things we can do. That's why we have one another. So we can learn. We can grow. We can be reminded. What Paul's really saying here is that he's as certain of the gospel as he is that God exists. (laughs) And he's so certain that he's staked his entire life now and forever on it. Is that how you believe the gospel? Is that how firm you are in this truth? Father God, we praise you, Lord, that you are the God of creation, the creator. But God, you are also the God of revelation. Father, that you reveal your truth, your gospel to us in your word. That you are the savior Father, even though you're so big and transcendent and holy, Father, we cannot grasp all that you are in your greatness, your holiness. Father, you reveal yourself to us so that we can know, so that we can believe. Father, so we can fear and love and worship. God, I pray that that would be the result of, of reading and studying your word together. That we would humble ourselves before you, Father, that we would cry out to you for forgiveness because of Jesus. Father, I pray that you would encourage us. God, I pray that you would work in us to be edified and built up and excited, Lord, about this one true gospel. God, we have it. We have it above anything else that's out there, and God, we need to share it. We need to bring it with those around, to those around us. God, I pray that you would give the words to say, give us the boldness, give us the love, Lord, to share it. Um, God, you get all the glory for that. You get all the praise, Lord, we, and, and you deserve it. We give it to you again in song now. In in Jesus' name we ask all of this. Amen.